starting a new series today on the book of Acts, and I'll be talking about it in a moment. But this morning we're going to uh, look really at the first verse, but I'm going to read the first 11 verses of the book of Acts. Here now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, let me begin this morning by first giving you a uh, justification for this new series on the book of Acts, mainly because I want us to stay focused on what we are seeking to learn throughout this study. So I'm laying the groundwork here to begin with, and, and I'll refer to it as we go along and, and keep that as our guide throughout our study. Um, I believe this is an important study for this church at this point in our history. Well, over the past 10 years, many of you know, this church has been through a number of crises. Uh, I've been here for a little over two years, and in that time, I believe the church has settled down a bit. The, the dust has settled from past crises, from Katrina, etc. And we find ourselves in a groove. The old crises have passed, and the weekly ministry of the church is being maintained. The budget is being maintained, mostly. The facilities are being maintained. The staff is being maintained. However, simply maintaining is not healthy for a church. If you only maintain, you will eventually die. I said we were in a groove. Are, are we in a groove or are we in a rut? As my old pastor used to say, uh, a rut is nothing more than a grave with the ends knocked out of it. We don't want that to be the case for uh, us. Churches are in one way supposed to be like little children in that they should always be growing. You know, a child should be growing in stature, uh, should be growing in their knowledge. They go to school and learn. They should be maturing physically, emotionally, mentally in many ways. And of course, when a person grows up, they stop growing physically, at least up. They start growing out sometimes, as in my case. But they continue to grow in other ways, hopefully. 
grow spiritually, grow in maturity, learn learning and, and always learning and, and growing. But all human beings eventually die. The church, on the other hand, like a child, should always be growing. Uh, a church may stop growing in significant uh, numerical growth. You, know, you think about a, a very large church that grows and then it starts uh, spinning off church plants because it's just grown to such a large size. Or you might be in a community where, uh, you know, if you've, you've got everybody in town, there's no, no, no one else to recruit, then uh, you're probably not going to grow numerically very much if you're in a rural area. So numerical growth sometimes can stop, but the church never stops growing spiritually, and it's never supposed to die like a human being dies. So the church is kind of supposed to be like a, a young child in that respect. If we stay in maintenance mode, we will certainly die because maintenance mode is inwardly focused. You just... We are trying to keep what we have. You see the inward focus there. It's we. We're trying to keep what we have. There's no forward looking, no outward push. And if we remain in that mode, then what we have will surely be taken from us. Life will be taken from us. Jesus told a couple of parables uh, that are very similar. The, the details are a little different, but the basic premise of both the parables are the same. In Luke chapter 19, he tells a parable uh, of the minas. And in uh, Matthew 25, uh, the parable of the uh, talents. And in both the stories, there are servants who were given resources by the master about to leave on a journey. And they were to increase those resources until he came back. And many of the servants did that. They increased what was given to them. And uh, there were varying degrees of success from one servant to the other. But when the master returned, these who had uh, taken their resources and, and uh, increased them, well, they were commended and rewarded for their labor. But those who buried their resources or hid them away, those who just maintained what they had, they were rebuked and they had those resources taken away and given to others. If our church only maintains what the Lord has given us, what we have, like the servants in the parables, will eventually be taken away. This is why I believe a study of the book of Acts is very timely for us. In the book of Acts, we are shown how Jesus built his church from a very, very small group of disciples and followers in Jerusalem to a movement that spread throughout the world. Think about the transformation of the disciples and eventually the church that we see from the end of the Gospels to even the first few chapters of Acts. When Jesus was arrested, you find the disciples abandoning Jesus. They are running for their lives. And you have Peter, uh, the most outspoken of the disciples, denying Christ repeatedly. And then the Gospels tell us that after Christ was crucified, that they continued to gather together, but they were behind locked doors because they feared for their lives, cowering in fear, not knowing where to go next 
totally gripped by fear and discouragement. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples for 40 days and 40 nights, it tells us here and in other places in the Gospels. And Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. And then we read here that Jesus left them. Uh, He ascended to heaven. But by the end of chapter 2, we find this once small, scattered band of fearful men and women transformed to boldly bear witness to Christ in Jerusalem, and their numbers immediately swell to 3,000 plus, and they continue to grow, as we will see throughout the book of Acts. By the time you reach the end of the book of Acts, you have moved from Jerusalem out into the surrounding lands all the way to the capital city of Rome. The church has exploded all over the world. The final sentence of the book of Acts tells us that Paul was in Rome, the capital of the world at that time, and he was, quote, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. From hiding in a small room behind locked doors fearing for their lives to joyfully facing persecution for the sake of Christ, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That is a great transformation in the space of just a few months. They were this small band fearing for their lives to bold witnesses as it as it's as they are described in chapter 17 witnesses who have turned the world upside down who would have thought it when you see them there uh denying Christ to a little servant girl as Peter did uh, at the trial of Jesus uh to the disciples uh fearing for their lives from the Jews for Uh, behind closed doors, and now they're described as people who have turned the world upside down. Well, that's the kind of transformation we need. And with this purpose in prayer on our lips, we ask the Lord to use His Word in Acts to transform us in like manner. That's our goal as we study this book of Acts together. May what happened to them happen to us as well. So I fear that we're a a bit discouraged. And maybe we're fearful. We don't really know what to do next. The book of Acts is going to tell us what to do next. We're going to follow his word and see see what it says and and seek to put it to practice in this church uh, as a body in our lives as individuals and make that kind of impact in the world for Christ and his kingdom. So let's begin by looking at verse 1, and verse 1 only today. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You think, well, what's so important about that? That's not a very exciting verse. Uh, He's just introducing the, the topic. But there's a lot here. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In the first book, now the first book he's referring to is the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the author of a gospel, obviously, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. It's a two-part series written by Luke 
dedicated to this person named Theophilus. If you look at the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, if you want to flip over there, I'll read it to you. He tells us why he wrote the book of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have taught. So, Luke, he tells us here at the beginning of his gospel that he has read other accounts, possibly the book of Mark, which is probably the earliest gospel. Maybe there were others as well. Uh, he has read those accounts. He has checked with eyewitnesses because he's only writing uh, a couple of decades, a few decades after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. People who were there, who saw it, who could have, who could have testified to it. He has uh, looked, checked with those witnesses and, and he has recorded a narrative of the life uh, of Christ, of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection so that Theophilus, this fellow, and us by extension, quote, may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. He has checked it out for us. He has done historical research for us. Here's what's true, and he's got eyewitnesses to back him up. These are not just legends that he made up, as people like to accuse Christian, uh, the Bible of today, that these are just legends that, that cropped up in the first century that his followers wrote down uh, you know, to, to make up something about Jesus to, to gain a following. Well, Luke is telling us, if you don't believe me, you can ask the eyewitnesses. There are plenty of them around. And there are other places in Scripture where Paul says the same thing. If you don't believe me, go to ask them, and it'll be proven. Well, notice how he described the Gospel of Luke here in Acts chapter 1. Back to, back to verse 1 of Acts 1. He says, In the first book, the Gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do and teach. You notice that he does not say... In the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus did and taught. It is all that Jesus began to do and teach. There's an implication here. The implication is this. If Luke is a, the Gospel of Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach, then the implication Luke is making is that Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and teach. And that is certainly the case as we see Jesus at work throughout the book of Acts. Jesus' ministry did not stop when he died, nor did it stop when he ascended into heaven that we just read about. Jesus continued to work through his disciples and his followers and he continues to work through his disciples and followers today. He is alive. That's why we celebrate Easter. Christ is alive. That's why we have worship on Sundays. We're celebrating the fact that he's alive. He rose from the dead. He's not, he's not dead. He's living and he's working. He is not physically present here, but he is spiritually present, and by his Spirit, 
He works through his followers. This sets him apart from all other leaders, religious leaders, uh, who's ever lived, who have ever lived. Other religious leaders, their followers say, uh, well, they completed their ministry on earth. They left behind their teachings for people to follow. Christianity says that Jesus rose from the dead, he is alive, and he is still working through his Holy Spirit, through his representatives on earth. John Stott says, This then is the kind of Jesus Christ we believe in. He is both the historical Jesus who lived and the contemporary Jesus who lives. He lives. He's working. So Luke does not think of his gospel as about Jesus and the book of Acts as about the church. No. Both books are about Jesus. Luke, the gospel, is about Jesus' ministry on earth, which he exercised personally. And Acts is about his ministry from heaven, exercised through his representatives. This is why when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, you know, you're back. And, uh, you know, you can do it now. We've been expecting that that's what you're going to do. And he says, you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will do it. Not just Jesus, but Jesus using his people, his followers. I am going to do my work through you who will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was telling them. Well, let me encourage you with this good news today. Jesus is alive and he is still working. That's great news. He is alive and he is still working. We get discouraged by what we see around us, uh, by watching the news, by seeing the events of the world by seeing the empty spaces in the pews before us. And we think that Jesus might not be working anymore. But he is alive, and he is still working. And if that's true, then maintenance mode is not an option for us. We must be involved in what Jesus is doing today. He's working today. Now, what is Jesus doing? That's the question. What is, what is Jesus doing? If Luke was all about, the Gospel of Luke was all about what Jesus began to do and teach, and Acts is about what he continues to do and teach, and we believe that he continues in our day to do and teach, then all we've got to do to answer that question is to simply look back to Jesus' life as it was recorded in Luke and the other Gospels. What he began then, he's continuing now. Uh, what he came on earth to do, he's continu continu continuing to do now. And there's many ways that we can express the answer to that question, what is Jesus doing? But I will just uh, sum it up in one word, redemption. That's what Jesus is doing, redemption. And when we think about the work 
that the church has to do when we think about the work that God is calling us to do is to be involved in his work of redemption. Redemption means deliverance from some evil by payment of a price. It's more than just simple deliverance or rescue. Uh, there's a price paid, ransom. A prisoner of war, for example, might be rescued from captivity by the paying of a ransom, pay off his captors. A slave might be freed from bondage through a payment. Uh, there's a biblical, many biblical examples. One is uh, in Exodus 21, there's a law that says if a man had a dangerous ox, uh, he must keep it under restraint. But if it got out and gored someone to death, so that that person was, you know, well, he was gored to death, so that person has died, then the law said, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. But this is not a case of willful murder. The man didn't mean for the ox to get out. Uh, thus, there's a provision made in the law in Exodus 21 that a ransom might be paid. So, he could pay, the owner of the ox that killed the man could pay a sum of money and thus redeem his forfeited life. He's not paying restitution for the death of the man. He's paying the price of redemption for his own life that he would not have to be put to death. But he's paying a ransom to be delivered from something bad, some evil. Jesus came into the world to deliver it from evil. If you back up and see the big picture, uh, of what God is doing in the world uh, to get an overview. And also, since we just did a study of Abraham, we'll see how this relates to Abraham as well. In the Garden of Eden, mankind had perfection. There was no sin in the world, no death. Everything was good, very good, God said. But Adam, as a representative for the human race, rebelled against God by doing what God had forbidden eating of the tree, of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil. Because he did this, sin and death entered the world. A curse was placed on the earth. Everything stopped working like it was designed by God to work. The ground grew thorns and thistles instead of beautiful plants naturally, etc. We could go on. But in the midst of these curses and death and sin that was placed on the on the world, uh, there was some good news that God gave to mankind. And that was a promise. A promise of one to come who would ultimately crush the head of evil. And this promised one will redeem mankind from sin and death and the curse by being bruised himself. Of course, that's Jesus Christ. The conquest over evil and the reversal of its effect on all creation is to take place, in Genesis 3.15, by the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. And one can trace this offspring down through Eve, through Seth and his godly descendants, through Noah, down to Abraham, where God's promise takes the specific form of offspring for Abraham. The seed of the woman is Isaac. The seed of the woman ultimately is Jesus Christ, who is a descendant of Abraham. He is, he is the seed of the woman. And you see what was promised 
Well, you can back up and go to Noah. What was promised to Noah? Well, when Noah, you know, endured the flood, you know, the, the, the evil had basically overtaken the world. God, in judgment, destroys it. But God makes a promise in the midst of that. says, I'm not going to destroy the earth again like that. I'm going to preserve creation. I'm going to redeem it. And then here with Abraham, he's saying, God, uh, Abraham, Abraham, God says to Abraham, follow me, come out, go to a place that I will show you. And we read it last week. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He, he told him three times, Genesis 18. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, Jesus is bringing about a redemption, a reversal of the curse, a victory over sin and death that is for all the nations, all the families of mankind. He's going to reverse the effects of Adam's fall. We see it in his earthly ministry when he healed the sick. The kingdom of God is breaking in, and he's, he's already starting to reverse the curse. We see it in his death as he paid the penalty for sin. Sin no longer has dominion over those who are in Christ because that, that enemy has been defeated by that Redeemer. And we see it in his resurrection when he conquered the last enemy, death. Death is no longer uh, a legitimate enemy for the one who puts his faith in Christ. See, the Redeemer has come, and that's what he's doing. He's bringing redemption. He's bringing victory over all this evil, sin, and death in the world. He's redeeming. He is applying the salvation he purchased with his blood to people today through the proclamation of this good news, of the one who's come. He's transforming people, and he's not only transforming people, he's transforming communities uh, he's transforming cultures. He's doing it through his witnesses, his followers, his disciples, his representatives, his ambassadors. Pick whatever name from Scripture you want to call it. That's, what the, that's how the Bible describes his followers. Now, let's apply this in our final few minutes. First, do you know that redemption personally? Have you experienced it? Have, have you experienced the cleansing and forgiveness of sins? Have you put your trust in what Christ did on the cross? Are you resting in Him for salvation, or are you resting in your own works? Your own works will not save you. You need someone outside yourself to save you. Christ has done that. Do you know that redemption personally? You can't be a witness, you know, that's what Jesus is saying. You'll be my witnesses. You can't be a witness to something that you did not experience. You cannot be a witness to something that you did not see. You know, nobody's going to call you to the courthouse to act as a witness uh, of something that you were not even in the state for. You know, a crime was committed, and they say, we need some witnesses. They're going to call people who were there, who saw it, who experienced it. Same is true here. If you want to be a witness for Christ, well, the first thing, you have to have something to witness to. You have, you have to have that experience. You have to know the redemption that Christ purchased for his people. Do you know that redemption personally? 
That's the first application. Secondly, can you as a redeemed individual say that you are involved in his work? Can we as a church say that we are effectively involved in that work that Jesus continues to do? These are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves in the coming weeks, as we months, as we study this passage. Now, my purpose here this morning was not to make everybody feel guilty. Uh, guilt is a terrible motivator. And, and anytime people start talking about evangelism or witnessing, uh, all of a sudden we start getting nervous and we start feeling guilty because we know we just don't do enough or we don't, we're not as effective as we should be or we're not dedicated. No, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. My desire here for myself and all of us is to create a hunger in each one of us to be involved in that work, to bring the good news of redemption to a lost and dying world, to, to look out at this messed up world in which we live and know that Jesus is still at work. He's still doing this thing. He's still redeeming people. And he uses his people, his, his witnesses, uh, his ambassadors to bring that work to individuals, to cities, to towns and cultures. He uses people like us. He's doing it. Are we involved in that? Do we have a hunger to be involved in that? So hopefully we, we do. We're getting that, and we will continue to get that. And, and also my purpose is to create a desire, not to make us feel guilty, but to create a desire in each of us to seek biblical knowledge on how we can be involved in that work. How were these cowardly disciples? They were ill-equipped men and women transformed to be bold and effective witnesses. How, how did that happen? I want us to understand that transformation and how it came about. But more than that, I want us to experience that transformation ourselves. I want to experience that transformation myself. To, to go from doubt and fear and discouragement to, yes, God is at work. What can I do? You know, He equips His church. We'll see that as we study this. How does, how does he go about doing that? How can we be equipped like those disciples were? How can we be transformed like the disciples were? So a little bit of a teaser this morning, our sermon is, to hopefully make you come back for more and to read through the book of Acts and see what it says and to be encouraged. And uh, I know we as, as the church leadership are going to be thinking of ways uh, to clarify the vision of our church. How can we be uh, effective in uh, carrying out the mission of Christ that he's given us here in Biloxi, Gulf Coast, throughout the world. Pray for us as we think about those things and, and uh, help me. You know, Contribute with your, hopefully we'll be asking you for more information about, uh, maybe take some surveys and things like that in the coming months to, to find out how we can be more effective. But be in prayer for this, this whole series, because I think it will be an important and encouraging series for our church. Let's pray together.